Welcome to the Hunting for Purpose podcast, the official podcast home for all human design manifestors. I'm your host, Holly Marie, a 4-6 clinic manifester, a certified human design teacher, and a manifester who is following her own creative urge to facilitate a thriving global community of aligned, powerful manifestors. Wherever you are at in your manifester journey, or even if you are here just because you love a manifester and you want to understand them a little bit more, this podcast is the place for you. Stick around for in-depth teaching, for real-life practical tips and understandings of the manifester journey, and how to become aligned and powerful and thriving as a manifester. You are here for global impact. You are here to change the world. The time is now. The journey is yours. This podcast is your home. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Hunting for Purpose podcast. We have another fantastic guest episode today as part of our Manifest and Meetup podcast series. We have the spectacular Kat Fitzgerald joining us, which I'm so excited about because Kat is really fun and funny and high vibe. So I'm really, really keen to get her voice on the podcast and let you all share in it. Uh, Kat is at the moment in her business doing human design and astrology and music and connecting it all into inner child work. But as a beautiful manifester, she's always changing. So at the time that you're listening to this, you might just want to jump on Kat's socials and see what she's doing. But Kat, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm pumped to be here. (laughs) So can you run us through your design what what type of manifesto are you and how did human design find you or or when did you stumble into the rabbit hole that is human design yeah well i am a three five emotional manifester um i've got the twelve twenty two emotional wave if anybody cares about that but <laughs> i stumbled into human design well rather i was guided to human design by my self-projected projector best friend of 20 years you know, she just kept going, you know, have you checked out human design? I feel like you're really going to like that and whatever. And the first time I pulled up the system, I was like, man, fuck this. I'm not doing that. Like, <laughs> not doing it. I had been intensely studying astrology for about a year at that time. And I was like, really feeling familiar with that. And to look at something that looked so different, I was like, mm, no. <laughs> but just a few months later, you know, she kept going, I don't know. I really think and I was like all right man (laughs) and I looked at it again and I was kind of hooked in by the undefined g-center actually and reading about that um specifically on Jess Fields Instagram you know she was doing a lot of talking about that and about being a three five and the g-center was something I used to have a lot of shame about so to look at that and the talking around an undefined g and how I'm not really ever supposed to be one single thing was like this moment of a beautiful opening for me. And then I was in, I was in and I haven't been out and it's been four and a half, almost five years now. (laughs) (laughs) Very much down the hole, not coming back out at this point. I love Jess Fields. For anyone listening, she's such a, a beautiful source of wisdom around human design. And I think that the way that, I mean, you know, we all have different voices. 
in the way that we speak about human design, but Jess Fields has this amazing way of, of taking complicated things and simplifying them into just clarity. So for anyone listening, I'm always getting requested for like recommendations as a line four. People are like, who's in the network? Where can I go to? People go to Jess Fields, please. Just go to Jess Fields because she's really good. No surprises that you stumbled in through her. Um, and that's so funny listening to your like initial resistance to human design. That was so similar for me. And I, I actually haven't found many other manifestors that have felt like that. Um, when I was first introduced to human design it was by the beautiful Eden Carpenter, a friend of mine and a human design teacher. And we, we were in a group program together and everyone was like, oh, this is my human design. This is my human design. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you guys. I don't need another label. Also undefined G-Center over here. It's <laughs> like, Mm-mm, not interested. Don't need it. It's all just another way of describing yourselves in a box. And I don't need mm-hmm. to be in a box. And uh, Eden's an MG. She was she was quite persistent, like lovingly persistent. She's like, I really think that this would be valuable for you, Holly. I, I really think that if you just just looked at this a little bit, you really might find that it's fascinating. And um, for me, the, the hook in was in understanding that manifestors are super rare and that we just operate really differently to everyone else around it. And that was just such a validating experience to see that. Um, I love that your hook in was the undefined G. I can so resonate with that. <laughs> like, oh, I am a million different versions of people. Uh, and that's normal. That's fine. Where, where do you see the crossovers really of astrology and human design? Because I know there are a number of people who approach human design strictly from the astrology viewpoint. Um, and astrology is not something that I've ever felt a call to dive into. But using both, how, how do you feel there's a harmony between the two? Well, for me, I know when I'm doing human design readings for people, I don't really go into the astrology of it because from a human design perspective, it doesn't, it's not so involved, you know, but when I look at things like the undefined G, I see my Gemini, Mm. you know, my Gemini placements that are like, wow, I need to do 10,000 things. My midheavens in Gemini. So my career is supposed to be 8 billion things. And I was like, there's a tie, you know? Or I look at my undefined root center with hella pressure on it. I've got, I believe, six hanging gates on my root center. Wow. And that's where I see Virgo. I see Virgo, the person who gives and gives and doesn't pay attention to themselves, you know, completely open sacral as well. So like, really, I'm getting my ass kicked by my spleen, my sacral and my root most of the time. Like, they've got sticks out. They're really beating me. It's fine. But like, I can see these things and my astrological chart is almost exclusively the planet Mercury. Like I have four placements in Virgo, three in Gemini, and then generational Capricorn planets and Saturn and Capricorn. So like, that's really where I see the crossover happening. And my defined head and Ajna, that's me being kind of like a dick about intelligence, essentially. <laughs> For better. So I'm like, no, I like smart people and I like to be smart. Thank you. <laughs> So, you know, I'm like, there it is. There it is. I see how they weave together. And I have a lot of clients that are also astrologers. And so it can be really fun in session because we're just naturally laying the two on top of each other and being like, oh, there's this, there it is. I see it. I see it. That's really fun. Yes. That's so cool. I think I've always had this sense with astrology that, um, 
it's so overarching, you know, like I've never had kind of like a personal connection, like a personal resonance to astrology. I can see where it's, where it's valuable and where it gives information, but I've also felt like it's so generalized and I love that human design makes things so specific. Um, but just like classic, I'm undefined head and Ajna. So thank you for bringing that to me because I can actually now absorb that perspective and say, oh, <laughs> you layer them. And, and we mm-hmm. see connections between the two instead of like keeping them as in entirely separate systems. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I appreciate your yeah. inspiration. <laughs> of course. And I think too, like I was initially very skeptical about astrology because I felt that it was super generalized and I didn't relate to any of the Virgo stereotypes despite being a Virgo son. And I have an astrologer friend. She sat me down one day and she was like, just let me do your whole birth chart. Just let me do the whole thing and you'll never feel that way again. She sat down, she read my whole chart and I was like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Like when I first got into human design, I was like, oh, astrology is way more nuanced than this. It's way deeper than this. There's so much more to astrology. And then of course, the deeper I got into human design, now I feel like I'm holding two universes in my hands all the time that I'm like, wow. (laughs) There's really a lot to both of these things here. Yes, that is spectacular. Having been kind of in the human design space for so long now, what do you think were kind of the key markers of really beginning to align with that design? Or or even like what were the bumps in the road of initially trying to get aligned with that, whether that was with um, your manifest in nature, whether the strategy of informing, whether it was your emotional wave, like what, what was that journey like for you? Oh man, I think the emotional wave was probably the most difficult for me to tap into because it's a really subjective, like fluid thing. It's not cut and dry. Like my son is splenic. I can see in real time what's happening there. Yeah. You know, he'll be swinging on a swing. This is before he was pre, before he was verbal. He's swinging on a swing, having a great time. And then bam, get me down that quick for him. You know, and for me, Sometimes I don't even know that I am on an emotional wave about something. I'm just now when I'm further into my journey, I'm like, oh, I'm being a moody bitch today. Like clearly I'm making a choice. (laughs) Well, okay, here we go. You know, it really is because otherwise, like I'm pretty chill. I'm pretty laid back. I don't really get knocked off my balance super often unless I'm in the emotional wave or unless something has really pissed me off. Otherwise I'm like, oh yeah, don't worry be happy you know so to kind of hinge into that feel that in my body somatically yeah a lot different (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I still feel like well the sacral center of course like (laughs) which probably will be the bulk of this conversation but I burned out so significantly like before I found human design when I was in college I used to work a morning job at a convenience store I'd open in the store at 5.30. I'd start my school day around 8.30, 9 o'clock. I'd have a whole day of college. And then I would do an evening job until midnight. And I'd do it every day. Mm. And um, didn't, I took so much pride. Like, look how much I can do it a day. Look at how tired I can be. (laughs) You know, like capitalism really has you thinking that, that like, wow, you are really doing life the right way. (laughs) If you have no free time in your and I would do so many fucking extracurriculars too I'd call my mom excited at the beginning of the semester like wow I'm doing all these things and she'd go oh honey you're you can't do all that 
I was like, no, 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 I've got it figured out on my schedule. I've written it down. This is where this will go, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward a month and a half, I'm calling her sobbing. <laughs> there's no <laughs> She's like, why don't you quit something? And I'm like, no, 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 I can't do that. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of the ground floor of that. And as I'm working, moving through the working world, it hit me. I was working in an office, an eyewear office, and I was in customer service and I kept moving up and they didn't hire anyone to replace me. So I kept taking all that work with me all the way to the top. And all of a sudden I couldn't do it anymore. I wasn't able to show up. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do the work. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm just done with this work. Like maybe this is just not what I want to do. So I hopped into a different intensive job and found the same thing. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I could not, I have an undefined heart. So there's no willpower there. Right. And I was trying to really force myself to make it happen because my reputation was such a concern to me. But now after my second child done, I'm at a place right now where I've been diagnosed with lupus I've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia for whatever it's, you know, that's just what they say when it's like, you're in pain and we don't know what to tell you what you have, mm-hmm. you have fibromyalgia, whatever. Mm. Um, I'm in this whole diagnosis process because there's like, there are other things that are not right. And my body is just like, we need to be done, bro. Like we really need to be done doing this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> listen, can you listen to the message now? We're trying to right. make it really clear. Yeah. And there was a point in time where I was sleeping 14 hours a day because my iron just left my body. (laughs) I used to give blood all the time. This was never a problem. Now I'm like two iron infusions in. I'm starting to feel like a fucking creature again. But (laughs) (laughs) up until that point, it was just such this huge screeching halt of my body being like, you haven't heard us for a long time. Now we're going to make you you're going to have to hear us now. And there's nothing you can do about that. And, you know, that has been a journey in many ways, particularly, particularly emotionally, because so much of my identity was married to being the perfect person. It really was. And being the person who could solve any problem. You know, I got that fifth line. You got a problem. I got it. I can fix it. doesn't matter what's going on over here. And then if you add the layer of trauma on top of that, Oh boy. (laughs) What a fun day out of the park. (laughs) Scream. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back, looking back now. Yeah. Can you see, I think that's such a familiar story for manifestors, right? I mean, that's almost directly mirrors my own story. It's very, very similar to the story of a lot of manifestors that I've spoken to. Do you have any experiences now of kind of looking back at the way that you used to run without this sacral energy and think just how in the hell did I do that? How did I do that? Because I can't actually see myself doing it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I literally don't understand how I was operating that way because now I nap several times a day sometimes. Like, you know, I really clued into when my body's like, hi, you need rest. And I'm like, you got it. (laughs) We're doing it. Please don't do anything to me. You know, but I think about that. And as I reflect on it, I can see now where it started to happen, you know, and I can see when the little ways in which my body was trying to tell me this, but, you know, one of my theories, and I don't know how many people agree with this or not, but 
an open spleen to me says dissociation. Like Mm. you can't feel your body unless you're really trying to feel your body. And especially with a history of trauma, when I walked into trauma therapy, oh, four years ago at this point, I said to my therapist, I can't feel anything from the waist down. I mean, I can, if I touch it physically, but walking around, it's not there. And she was like, oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) This one's going to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we started doing EMDR and I've been doing that for a while. And she was suggesting some other modalities to try. Like I've tried somatic experiencing. What sticks out in my memory is the first time I did acupuncture. (laughs) Because I went into acupuncture and I told her this. I was like, look, like, here's my trauma history here's the parts of my body that are not awake. Like, can you help me? She did her thing, put her needles in me. And I walked out of there and I was like, Oh boy, this is heavy. Is this what a body feels like? Is this what, okay, this is embodied. All right. Like this is really different. This is really different. And that was like a really pivotal turning point in me actually understanding what it meant to be embodied. Cause I thought that I was embodied. You know, I really, my brain is very powerful and active. Right. So I'm like, I got it. Like I'm healing. I'm in my body. And then to actually feel it in a tangible way was like earth shattering for me. Yeah. That's phenomenal. That's as as a splenic authority myself, that is like hearing a story that is so in contrast to my own. Like I can't get out of my body. It is always present. It is always talking to me. Often I want it to shut up. And I spent many, many years trying to make it shut up, ultimately arriving at the same place that you did, right? You know, with with my body screaming at me. I think that so much of that conversation is wrapped up in the sacral center and not to demonize the sacral center at all, but I think that it's really pivotal I mean it is the crucial center of the manifestor experience and um, deconditioning through that firstly becoming aware that we even have conditioning in it and then going through that deconditioning process and in in my mind there is such profound connections to the sacral center and chronic disease right and and why we have these these really serious experiences as non-sacral beings with unexplainable chronic diseases that usually fall into the autoimmune camp yeah exactly like you said like is it just these labels to describe the fact that your body is just in pain like it's just not functioning it's just not doing what it's meant to do can you talk us through your journey with your sacral center like when did you actually first start identifying that hey, I'm non-sacral and I might actually have some conditioning in here and it's causing some problems. It was not until I found human design that I even tapped into that I was doing this to myself. And initially I really had a lot of fuck you energy about that. This was, this was my life. You know, I was the person everybody went to, to fix the problems. They needed somebody to help them with something. I was the one I never didn't have time to hold space for somebody, you know, whatever it was, I could do it. And it just like, (laughs) I'm reading all this shit about manifestors and how much we have the capacity to do. Right. And I'm like, no, this doesn't, Mm -hmm. mm, I don't know. Maybe like, I'm just different from that. (laughs) Maybe that's not going to be the truth for me, (laughs) but you know, pretty quickly it became undeniable that it was 
And so I had to work through that emotional hurdle of like, it, it was really a grief process, a grieving of the person that I had been up until that point and a becoming friends with the new person I was growing into. Mm, that is such, such a wise point, such a wise point that, um, and I've spoken about this a few times, that we have this ownership over capability as manifestors. It's it's almost been, I think, like the the antithesis to us not fully using our power, right? Us not really being free to initiate and do the things that manifestors do. It's it's like we have soothed ourselves by then saying, well, if I can't do that, I'm going to be so damn capable. Like you watch me. I am going to, everything that I take on, I am going to do. And there is no limit, right? There's no, we never reach like an outside boundary or threshold where we say, that's enough now. That's good. It's just, it continues <laughs> to perpetuate, right? And, you know, like I, I, I was crazy, very similar to your story for years and years and years, even, you know, up until my, my last business before moving online, I owned a brick and mortar business. I worked on my feet a hundred hours a week on my feet. Like mm. I, you know, it was a hospitality business. I was at work from 6 30, 7 o'clock in the morning through to eight o'clock at night, up serving mm. people, doing stuff. And um, because I was a manifestor trying to prove that I was so very capable of everything, uh, even the job that I had had before I purchased that business, which was kind of it was like in the same um shopping complex, right? So I didn't move too far. Um, my old boss, it was an events business. And my old boss would ring me and say, Hey, we've got a big event tonight. Someone's pulled out. Can you come in and manage it? And so I would go from working all day to then working all night on my feet, again, serving people like scraping food, lifting heavy plates, plastering a smile on my face until two, three, four o'clock in the morning, and then get up and do it all again. Um, it is no wonder that my body tapped out. Like, no one, I have a defined ego. Even my ego is like, <laughs> you're telling us we should have willpower. We're done. We, we out of that willpower that you keep saying we should have. And, you know, like I had a very long history of chronic illness before that. It had actually healed. It had actually gone away after like long periods of rest and deep healing. And then I placed my body back in another situation where then I developed an issue with my heart. And ultimately that's what stopped me. And that's what moved me away. But this, this propensity that we have to say, I'm going to be so capable. I'm going to do all the things and I'm going to do them super well. Although that seems like on the surface, it's probably from other places. I really think that that originates in that sacral center, in this, this kind of inability to say no to something. This like, I will prove my place by showing you how hard I can work at this how do you feel like that resonates for you in your story yeah I think too like that idea of I'm going to do the most trademark is like you think you're being really impressive and you are but at the same time to actually embrace what the true manifestorness is you know our huge creative burst and the things we can put out when we're aligned that's so much more impressive Mm. actually you know but it's really scary to go from oh this is impressive that everybody understands 
to this is impressive that can actually feel good and is going to be misunderstood a lot of the time like that yeah. can be really scary to embrace. Yeah. Yeah. One, one is predictable. One is, mm-hmm. one is comfortable to a certain degree, right? If, if we are just emulating the hardest workers, yeah, air quotes, <laughs> to a degree, if we're just emulating the hardest workers around us, then there is a sense of certainty in that. I think that, you know, if I can just keep up and even better, if I can do more, I can do more than what they're doing in the way that they're doing it then I'll be accepted and if I'm accepted then I'll be successful and then I'll be satisfied and then I'll actually get all of these things except they never arrive they never arrive and I you know even now for me I've been um years now into this process of of trying to be a manifester like actually like try to be aligned with this and let the creative urges come through and and not relying on that sacral center it's still scary. It's still scary because every time that we have a creative urge, it's unusual. Like it's mm-hmm. uncertain. It's unproven. It's never been seen. We don't know. Are people going to accept it or are they going to hate it? Don't know. Most of the time, there's always a, a portion of people who are looking at you like you're crazy and don't get it. <laughs> and and to be honest, I think that we're often looking at ourselves thinking, this is this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Like this is, I can't even make this logical. This is just what I need to be doing. But I so agree with you that that has so much more power to it, so much more power than just trying to push through other ways. What was that? You know, we talk about sacral burnout quite a bit in the human design space for us poor non-sacrals. What was that experience like for you of like, what does that feeling feel like in your body when you actually associated to it? What does sacral burnout feel like? For me, when I think about it, there was a point where my energy was so low that I would have to watch a creative urge go past me Mm. because I couldn't, I couldn't rise to it. And, you know, there's been like peaks and valleys as I'm going down into the deepest parts of the burnout. So I got a little taste of a manifestor initiation and what that felt like. And I was like, this is dope. All right, this is great. And then I went down even further and then I had to start watching them pass me by. And I was like, oh God, like, did I, have I, have I really done it? Like, am I not going to come back from this? Have I done it so badly and burned out so hard that this is my life now? And honestly, sometimes I do still grapple with that because it's still so very up and down all the time that I'm like, is there going to be a time when the incline continues to incline and like, we're going to fucking rock it, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) please God, (laughs) you know, but it really just comes down to time. It's just time. And I wouldn't describe myself as a particularly patient individual, you know, for any manifestors. No, I've never met a patient manifestor in my life. (laughs) Not part of our description. I don't think. No, I'm thinking about too, like after I had my son, he's six now, six and a half after I had him, you know, I did like the natural birthing center thing and I had a water birth. It was beautiful, blah, blah, blah. Um, There's a law here that if you aren't able to get up and do the things you need to do after, I think it's like six hours or something, they have to transfer you to the hospital. Now my body did not recover in that time at all. I kept trying to stand up and I'd pass out. And at the same time, my son's um, heart and breathing wouldn't slow down. 
So we went to the hospital together. (laughs) Nothing ended up being wrong with me. It was just that my body needed so much longer to just chill out. They gave me fluids. They kept me overnight and I was fine. And of course this dude doctor, I come in there and he's like, well, I mean, if you had had your baby in a hospital, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, <laughs> would you like me to commit your murder today or tomorrow? Because <laughs> you know, and this is my first baby and I'm horrified and whatever. And he, my son ended up having to have a lumbar puncture, like all kinds of like super traumatic shit right in that first day. And my partner at the time had gone home. And he slept through the labor and it was just like the most unsupported thing (laughs) I could possibly think of. Luckily I had my midwife there who stayed with me through all these procedures, but then he's in the NICU for two weeks and I'm there by myself and I'm navigating this huge change. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh shit, my energy was loud. Then I was like, oh no, what have I done? (laughs) I have this tiny creature that needs me a lot. Oh boy. (laughs) Wow. And I became like severe. I had severe postpartum depression and I didn't know. I didn't know that was what was going on. And um, my mom came to visit around Christmas. He was born in November, came to visit Christmas. And she looked at me and she went, oh no, (laughs) you're coming home with me because I was so not there. And that was like, I think really the first time that I became very aware that like, okay, I've read about all, everything I could think to read about motherhood and what to expect in the infancy stage. And I'm recognizing that this is not what it's like for me. So what what does that mean? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Tapping out, tapping out of that, um, that wisdom and that insight from your body, such a classic trademark of, of the manifester energy I think that we we have an inner voice we, we do we and, and it resonates right we have this closed aura it's like a dome right like the flipping under the dome like the Stephen King novel and the, the tv show like it it bounces off we hear our voice reverberating back to us and we put really significant effort into trying to make it shut up into trying to make it go away until it it really will just make itself known it will manifest itself in whatever way it needs to to be heard um I think that that's so very true of motherhood for manifestors <laughs> as a manifesto with kids myself and people are constantly like requesting me to, to write more content on on being a manifester and, and being a parent and it's it's just such a big field like it's just it's so complex and it's mm-hmm. so nuanced and I haven't quite like you know my conscious son is is the gate of doubt so I'm really like I need to understand the truth of this before I can tell you people about it. But I'm super curious as a fellow mother yourself, and you also, both of your kids are manifestors. So you've got like a, a triple manifestor current running through your family. What what was your experience, A, I guess, of like carrying your children, like having pregnancies as a non-sacral being and any other energy center that you had? Um, and now, you know, as your children are growing up, what is it like for you? being a manifester that's also a mother. Yeah, well, right before I got pregnant with Freddie, my chronic illness was starting to show up. I didn't know that was that at the time, but I was like not feeling well. I got pregnant, bam, felt great. Cause there's something about pregnancy that kind of pushes chronic illness away for that time. You know, a lot of people will say that they experienced that. Well, I did for his pregnancy. 
and it was great. I felt mostly great. I was pretty ill in the first trimester with him, but yeah, whatever, you know, his birth was super like picturesque. I had read all these fucking anime Gaskin books. And she talks about like, just like imagining that you're, you're like opening up and you're elastic and da 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 da. Cause I was like, I do not want to fucking tear my vagina. I would rather die. I would rather <laughs> die. That is the thing I don't want. I want stitches in my vagina, please God. <laughs> so I'm like, I have a music playlist and I'm like in the water and I'm like, I am huge, you know, like whatever I could think of. And I'll have, you know, neither time did I tear my vagina. You know, like I did that. So, that and I like, you're informing. Mm-hmm. This seriously. is the way I want it to be and I will inform. Yeah. <laughs> and as he's crowning i'm like cracking a joke i'm singing burning ring of fire by johnny cash because i think that's hilarious I would say, as he's literally coming into the world right so his birth was great the aftermath was like stressful and traumatic but he lives and here we are um my daughter's birth was significantly more difficult well her pregnancy my body decided it was about to make too much relaxing so i was really like my joints were very like fluid. Your, I learned that your pelvic bone can actually like uh, move if you have too much. And I would roll over in bed and it would go crack like super. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was, that was a time I had the worst like acid reflux with her and she came out with full head of hair, of course, you know, <laughs> and um, also the initiation of labor was not normal. You're supposed to be able to time your contractions and be like, oh, okay, now it's time to just head over to fucking labor and delivery, whatever. No, it never happened. It never got regular. I was just like chilled in pain for a while. And I was like, I think now is the time I'm, I'm going to call out. We're going to go. So we go to the birthing center and, um, five hours, that's it. And she was out, <laughs> but wow. she got stuck. Cause you know how babies will usually morph, you know, as they're coming out and their heads a little cone shaped. No, no, no. Magnolia was not doing this. <laughs> First of all, she had her head like kicked off to the side and the pressure from the baby's head is what opens the cervix. Right. So one side of my cervix was open and the other side was not. And this being the second time I'm like, so guys, um, something is not right. Something's not right. And my midwife was like, no, no, no. Like we can see things are happening. You're opening up. Everything's going great. And I'm like, I'm pushing though. And she's not moving. I'm telling you. And then a couple minutes went by and you could feel the energy in the room just change. And I was like, yep, problem. (laughs) Now, luckily one of my midwives, God bless, God bless her had very tiny hands and, um, was able to reach in and push the other side of my cervix back. And she was like, this is going to hurt, but this is the shot. If we can't get this to happen, then we have to transfer to the hospital. And I was like, I'll be damned. So (laughs) let's give it a try. (laughs) So she goes in to do that. And it actually didn't hurt at all because the back labor from her being stuck like that was so severe that I didn't even feel her do this. Uh, My body definitely holds physical trauma in that spot. But, you know, luckily I didn't feel it at the time. Now, my husband, (laughs) we've got a sheet, you know, wrapped up between us as if we're playing tug of war. And she's like, you guys are going to pull there. I'm going to push here. We're going to get this baby out. And Freddie's birth was very quiet. It was very calm. There's a lot of humming, you know, whatever. 
with her, I was like, Magnolia Jane, get the fuck out. You know, like primal, screaming, rage, you know, whatever. (laughs) And I just didn't care anymore. The first one, I was really self-conscious about being perceived in a primal way. I was. But the second time, I had a supportive partner. And I was in so much fucking pain that I was like, I literally don't give a shit. We need to get this child out. So she comes out the whole way. She comes out like this, right? Sideways, head kicked off to the side, comes out. This child is nine and a half pounds. (laughs) And I was like, wow, okay. She didn't fit her newborn outfit. (laughs) But you know, uh, the aftermath was so much better. I didn't pass out. I also didn't tear the second time. Thank you. And, um, you know, I really think my body's reaction the second time had so much to do with feeling like everybody in the room was there for me and that I was going to be well taken care of afterwards. You know, like that was such a big deal. Yeah. And it was great. I think pregnancy is, you know, once again, we look at like 70% of society are sacral beings, right? And and they will carry pregnancy very differently because they have this, this sacral energy, um, especially if they're also carrying a sacral being, there's this kind of like life force feeding off. And as non-sacral beings, we expect ourselves to be able to do the same as women, right? Exactly what you described. Like, I don't want to be perceived in a particular way. I, you know, I just want to kind of fit the run of the mill here and make sure that like, I'm doing a great pregnancy and I'm doing a great birth and, and everything's fantastic. And, um, you know, my, my pregnancies were horrific and, you know, my births were, were also really hard and my body did not recover and my body did not want to play nice. And, and ironically out of my three children, I have a projector, a generator and a manifester. My generator was the one that I was most sick with throughout the whole pregnancy. And I really think it was this interplay of like sacral burnout with me feeding her energy and not being able to sustain it. And, you know, as manifestors, we, we female manifestors in particular, we place so much criticism on ourselves for, for trying to be mothers like everybody else's mothers, whether Mm -hmm. that's through pregnancy or through birth or trying to raise these damn kids. Like we just really, really feel like we need to be the same as everyone else. And we are just not. We are just, we're just not, you know, before we started recording this podcast, you and I were talking about like sleep, sleep patterns, you know, and you were saying like, you don't, you need more sleep. Like you got to get up and send your kids away and then you can go back to bed. Are there any other things that you do as a manifest and mother to kind of survive essentially, like actually get, get what you need? Yeah, I was, I was very surprised after learning about human design and knowing that my son is a manifester, he, despite being single definition is finds it very difficult to be alone. And it was like that since he was an infant, I had to be right there. You know, he doesn't like to play by himself. And now he has a sibling and I'm like, thank you, God. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Even if she came out sideways, it was worth it. It was totally worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was really difficult for me he's only just now at six starting to do some things independently and it's like this breath of fresh air but I before I was a mother I thought (laughs) lol I thought that I was going to be making 
organic baby pureed food I thought that I was gonna be like this like very Pinterest whatever like picturesque bullshit (laughs) and then it actually happened and I was like oh and I started to understand like I'm not fulfilled by motherhood in any way this Mm. is not a fulfillment and that I had to work through that because at first I was like, oh my God, I can never tell anybody this. I can never tell anybody that I don't wake up like fucking elated to be a parent, but I I don't. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And I think it's true, especially for manifestor mothers. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that I don't love my children. It doesn't mean that there aren't moments where they're bringing me joy and like having deep emotions about them. But like at the end of the day, I'm fulfilled by my work. Like, that's what I find fulfillment in. And that was like hmm, a really big realization for me because I thought that I was supposed to be and that I was going to be. And then to learn that, okay, actually, this is going to be like a true labor of love. This is going to be a lot of work for me, especially with my history of childhood trauma and how important it is to me to not repeat that cycle. Just, it's like a Herculean effort. Yeah, I just, I don't even have words with how much I agree (laughs) with all of that. So, 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 so fundamentally true and spot on and also associated with so much shame from society Mm -hmm. that, you you know, I, I am a mother with multiple children and no, I'm not fulfilled by motherhood, never have been. I, I believe I'm a great mother. My children are having a wonderful childhood like like you I also had childhood trauma it's very very important to me that my children are not traumatized in their childhood and it is that Herculean effort it is constant it is every single day and I love you using the term labor of love because I really think that that's what it comes down to for for mothers as um you know who are manifestors we don't we don't find that nourishment from motherhood Mm -hmm. that other people do so it is a state of self-sacrifice it is this constant daily decision to say even though this doesn't fulfill me and even though this takes more energy than I know I have to give I'm going to show up for Mm -hmm. it and I'm going to do my best and I'm going to love these little humans as much as I possibly can, which is remarkably challenging as a mother because children are jerks most of the time. So, and, and that's just their nature, right? They're allowed to be as, as they're, they're journeying through childhood and they're growing up and they're learning stuff. Um, so, I, you know, I think that often we look at motherhood in the energy types as this surface conversation, like, oh, generators and manifesting generators, they have the energy to keep up with their kids, you know, and, and non-sacral beings don't. I think for manifestors, it's much deeper than that much, much deeper, that, that this is a question about purpose. This is a question about fulfilment and true, you know, that true state of soul satisfaction. And motherhood does not provide that for us. And, and it never does. But that's a, that's a very deep secret that a lot of manifesto mothers are carrying around with them. So I'm so glad that you said that, it, you know, you're, even as a mother of, of other manifesto children, like mm-hmm. and on the top layer of that, like that should look easy. Like, well, you understand yep. your kids and they understand you and there you go. You know, it's great. I am, my manifest child is my hardest kid. He's the mm-hmm. hardest out of all of them. 
he drives me to the brink of insanity and over it, well over it, kilometres past the brink of insanity, you know. And it's <laughs> raising a manifest a child is no joke. It's yeah. it's very, very difficult. Um, what has been, I guess like what are your what are your tips <laughs> for people who might be listening who have a manifested kid? Like what recommendations can you give to hold that sanity in place? Man, how loose can you be with rules? <laughs> <laughs> right. Expect nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Honestly, honest to God, like that's it. How much can you say yes? And if you gotta say no, how can you say it as if you're saying yes? You know, like it's a no to this, but I'm gonna give you a yes to this other thing, you know. I noticed that from my conditioning, I was raised in a household of only generators. <laughs> and um generators and manifesting generators. And I noticed that my their voices come out of me sometimes in parenting. I'll check in with myself and I'm like, I'm fighting about this for no reason, really, because it's not, not actually that important to me. I'm trying to have the upper hand and the control here. And it's not because of safety and it's not because of, you know, something they really truly need to know in the world. It's just because we're fighting about this. So a lot of times I'll check in and I'll be like, all right, you know what? I know I said, no, I'm going to change my mind. And here's why. And for my son, my son and I struggle a lot more than my daughter and I, because she and I are both emotional (laughs) and that like provides a specific type of understanding, I think. And him being splenic, we're like (laughs) all the time. And he's a five, one as well. So he's five, one, I'm a three, five, and (laughs) I'll be trying to tell him why he has to do something. And he's ready with 75 questions, all of which are like, <laughs> well, actually X, Y, Z, A, B, C, da, da, da. And we'll like go around and I'll like finally convince him of something. And he goes, <laughs> I guess mama, <laughs> <laughs> because he really just comes from that seat of, I already know, I already know. So <laughs> we have those kinds of things, but yeah, I think really far and away, I have the easiest time with my children when I'm giving them the longest possible leash, if you will, Yeah, you know, and reining them in when it's unsafe, but otherwise kind of understanding that they're going to be fucking reckless and understand, remembering, remembering my childhood and remembering that I was fucking reckless (laughs) and that you couldn't tell me shit, especially as a three, five, you can't tell me shit. Even now I got to fuck it up myself. gotta do that I have to do it my poor my poor husband as a manifesting generator he'll see me doing things and he's like that's that's not very efficient and I'm like thank you very much for your unsolicited opinion (laughs) let me do my shit you know because if I don't make these mistakes I can't teach anybody nothing and he's like "Uh, (laughs) all these steps why don't you skip them Yes, 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 yes. So many of us have been have been raised by manifesting generators and generators, of course, just by kind of statistical nature of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that feeling of being controlled, that feeling of being squashed, of um, being told no, of, you know, this, I think this sense that we gain of ourselves that we must be intrinsically wrong because we have always been told that everything that we want is wrong and everything that we do is wrong and every decision that we make is wrong. That's mm-hmm. been really integral for me in trying to parent a manifester, you know, in, in saying yes, 
saying yes to as much as I, I possibly can and in being as as loose <laughs> with every expectation and every rule mm -hmm. as I can um but also being really celebratory of him as a yeah. manifester right like hey bud that's mm -hmm. your idea what a great idea like do it you go ahead and do it and you put all of your energy into that we we are very different I'm splenic and he's emotional so we definitely do have that friction right where where I'm like make a damn decision like now <laughs> and my husband is a splenic projector so we're really fast decision makers and um you know my emotional projector son and my emotional manifester son they're both like they get so overwhelmed so mm. overwhelmed by trying to make decisions quickly and I think that this is part of like the the self-awareness journey of like I, I am me but other people are different from me and human design gives us some language mm -hmm. to actually have some grace yeah. I think for that and say even mm -hmm. even in the places where we're very similar we can also be very different and I can celebrate that if I can understand it then I can celebrate that in you um, and that's given me like a lot of uh, a lot of acceptance and a lot more love in the parenting journey. Like I'm not here to make my kids anything different than what they are. I'm really just here to help them identify it and and try to stay sane in the process as much as I possibly can. Yeah. When I, I was reading some of Ra's talks on manifestors and he mentions in one of them that manifestors are statistically the most abused out of all children, right? And I know that is really true for me, you know, yeah. anything you can think of, basically I experienced it. And when I was learning PHS and I learned that I was high sound, it just like triggered this like series of memories for me <laughs> because I used to naturally at the table, I'd sing, I'd sway, I'd dance, I'd whatever. Now enter in my stepdad, he's low sound mm. and um, he was a very controlling man. Uh, so he's gotten a lot better over the years, but you know, he was not ready to parent to manifest her child <laughs> and, uh, in many ways. And, uh, he couldn't tolerate even being looked at, at the dinner table. Couldn't look at him, couldn't make any noise, couldn't nothing. And, um, just to start unraveling that. And now I'll listen to music when I'm eating. You know, I have like 8 billion planets in Virgo. Digestion has never been a friend of mine. <laughs> but now it's like, okay, first one I read, you know, you digest using sound waves. I was like, all right, I, I can hold a lot of things loosely, but I just don't know if I can really get down with the idea of that. That sounds fucking stupid. <laughs> but then I start like playing with it, right? And I'm listening to music I love, or like I find myself sitting in a coffee shop pre-pandemic, you know, and just taking in these sounds that are very pleasing to me. And all of a sudden I realize that I haven't had any like discomfort while I'm eating. And I'm like, all right, maybe this actually works. Maybe this actually works. And it just gave me those tools. Now my son is low sound. So I can understand that now. I can understand why he gets so pissed off when his sister doesn't shut up at the dinner table. <laughs> and I can offer him a space by himself that's comfortable and that's not a punishment for being out of control at the table because that out of control is just dysregulation. That's all it is. And I can say, honey, I'll come with you into your room and we can just watch a quiet show or we can listen to quiet music while you eat. And it's just like 
to have these tools as a parent, even just as like a fucking person, it's just like so invaluable. My life has been changing so drastically over these four and a half years. It's just like, I want to give it to everybody. Yes, 100%, 100%. Can we touch on trauma for a bit and and how that interplays I mean we could like talk about that from so many different angles um but really how that interplays into the conditioning journey I think that I very much agree with Ra I I do believe that manifested children and in particular because we've had a patriarchal society for several hundred years female manifested Mm -hmm. children have been disproportionately Uh, victims of abuse and you know we covered this a couple of episodes with um, Tessa Hayward talking about intimacy as a manifester and um, how sexual trauma plays a really big role in in all of that because so many of us have had sexual trauma Um, I like you had every type of trauma it was the trauma buffet you know for my (laughs) for my childhood and uh, you know and into my teen years and early 20s trauma is wrapped into every experience that I have as a human, you know, it's held in my body, it's developed my belief systems, it's played a role in all of my, my conditioning. Um, And and it has created a a big part of my story, too, you know, because there has has been this, uh, I've need to overcome that adversity, you know, and move on from these things and try to determine what, if anything, I learn from that, other than other than pain, what value can I draw from that? Do you feel like your trauma played a part in your conditioning journey? Right? Did you did you kind of see any like tapestry weaving in between the two things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I'm processing trauma or when I find myself in a situation that is triggering my trauma, it the interplay between especially my undefined and open centers, it's so like it's like reading a storybook, you know, cause they're all different characters and they're fucking tag teaming with each other. You know, you think about intimacy, you know, sex trauma. This is where like the CPTSD piece comes in because this is longstanding over a long period of time abuse, right? The idea that like, I'll be in an intimate situation and it's much better now after therapy, but it would be like, I'd get in an intimate situation I would so rarely have the desire to be intimate, first of all, (laughs) but then it's like, I decide to do that. And immediately I'm in my head, I'm gone. I'm not in my body anymore. So the idea of like reaching an orgasm, how, how do you do that when you're not in your body? Hmm. So then it also plays on the like, okay, well now I'm going to perform this because I don't want to make the other person feel some type of way. And it took so long to even be aware that that's what I was doing, that I wasn't in my body, that that's, that this was a performance, you know, like that took so much time to even check into. And I think too, the one, the one that's actually most difficult for me to unravel even still today is the bigness of my character. That was the most challenging for my stepdad, especially to handle that I was so big and I was so expressive and loud and fucking like rambunctious. And now it comes out in small doses, but when somebody reacts in like a pullback from how big it can be immediately, I feel it just like light up all my trauma. And that voice is like, Oh, see, even this person who says they love you so much, they can't take it. 
you know, it's like something's still wrong with you. Something's still wrong. Now that's not true. This is like my power to be this fucking weird ass, eccentric ass motherfucker. But, you know, it's like so conditioned to be wrong. So it's that constant push and pull of like, this is okay. You are safe. Even if they react that way, it's not really got anything to do with me. (laughs) It doesn't, you know, it's probably hitting kind of the same wound in them that, wow, this person can be their full self. And then it's like this ping pong back and forth where we're just like, oh, drama, you know? (laughs) So that's like the one I'm really trying to unravel right now because I want to be able to be that all the way. Yeah. And, you know, I think if we were to pin any, any kind of universal conditioning over all manifestors, that would be number one on the hit list. Mm -hmm is this this conditioned belief that I am too much in some way, shape or form. I talk too much. My energy is too much. I've got too many ideas. Um, you know, whatever, I, I make too much sound. I move around too much. I, I sleep too much. I need too much. I demand too much, right? Yeah. Even like we can, we can go into deeper layers of that too, like a um, I have an, an undefined emotional center. I came from a whole family of defined emotional beings. I was always wow. told you're too dramatic, like you're mm. too emotional, which I could just never intellectually wrap my head around <laughs> because I was like, but I'm not, but I, I it's, it's, I'm not, it, it's never my emotion. It's always your emotion. Like you're the dramatic ones. You're the emotional ones. But you know, that wound, that conditioning, that fear for us of I am too much, insert word, is that is just, it's got mm-hmm. manifesto written all over it. And when we apply that to trauma, you know, if, if we have so many facets, right? But in the end, a trauma response is usually a shutdown. It's some version of I need to be protected because this is not safe. And so I do think we have this kind of like mixology going on. We create this kind of weird, like funky manifesto drink that we all swallow every day where we feel like, well, I've got to be on guard to look for all of these situations where I'm too much. I'm too much of a person. I'm too much of something. I'm too much of this. I'm too much of that. And if I see any evidence of it, then it's my duty to shut the hell down. It's my duty to diminish that, to repress that, to keep the peace, to do what other people want, to twist myself into pretzels, you know, being the person that I'm expected to be. And the saddest part about this is is that that single cycle, just that single simple cycle, I think is, is the number one way that we actually stop ourselves from being able to initiate as manifestors. Mm -hmm. We pull ourselves out of any ability to fully hear our creative urge and then actually have, have the willpower and, and the tenacity to follow it through. Um, and I think that's how, how well, I end up hearing from so many manifestors saying, I know I'm meant to have creative urges, but I just, I just can't. Like, I just can't <laughs> seem to, like, do anything. I just can't really seem to be a manifestor. I know I have this power, but I can't tap into it, right? And it's because all of that energy is going to facilitating this conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too much. How do I not be too much, you know? I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about too, like, one thing I, I never relate to as like a manifesto trope is that we're like the lone wolves or whatever. That doesn't resonate for me, never has resonated for me. You know, I'm also split definition. So they're like, is that too? But I, 
when I started stepping into who I actually am and went from the child and teenager, young adult that never rocks the boat, never makes a fuss, very agreeable to the person who has very definitive, like almost aggressive opinions. (laughs) It's like watching friends and family drop, watching them drop. And, you know, I don't speak to my father, you know, my relationship with most of my family is very like (laughs) questionable because now I'm this person that's really unfamiliar to them. Now, all of a sudden they're seeing that I am a full person and I'm not just somebody who's going to just like be their mirror or whatever, bounce their shit back to them. And that's problematic. And well, for them, not for me, it's problematic for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You'll be clear. Um, And there, there is pain that comes along with that. And for me personally, you know, there's being a manifester closed and repelling. There is the undefined G center not no fixed identity. And then there is the fifth line, which is constant projection. And those three things together, it's like no fucking chance that anybody's going to see me for who I am. I can't even (laughs) most of the time because it's not, it's not fixed, you know, but there is like that kind of interplay too, between like, okay, I'm going to step into this. I'm going to take all my little bravery and I'm going to be the person that I know I am at least today. And then to see all the unaligned things fall away, although it's correct. And in the long term, it's going to feel so much better. In the short term, it's like, oh, okay, well, whew, I'm being who I am. And I guess their love was really conditional in the end. And like, okay, I'm going to work through that. You know, like it is hard. I'm mm, so glad you mentioned that. I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of my greatest frustrations, not even frustration, it's just outright anger. It always makes me angry. <laughs> that a classic manifesto that, you know, we now have these, these whole industries, these, you know, billion, billion dollar industries about personal development, about self-awareness, about self-growth. And very, very rarely is it ever touched on that as soon as you, I mean, insert a word, I, I call it deconditioning, but it can be, you know, do shadow work, can be healing, can be growth, can whatever you want. They're all the same same thing. But as soon as you decondition, shit's going to get real chaotic in all of your relationships because all of these relationships and and often the long-term ones, it's often these, you know, like foundational relationships like family, friends that you've mm-hmm. had for your whole lives, you know, long-term jobs that you've been in. All of these relationships which are built on the fabric of you being conditioned then mm-hmm. start to unravel because you are no longer the person that they want you to be. And the question becomes, do I go back to being Mm -hmm. that person? Now that I'm out of this shell, do I go and put myself back in to keep them happy, even though it is is short-lived, right? That is temporary placating of people. It's not of benefit to anyone. Or do I burn this whole city that has always lived around me? Do I burn this whole thing to the ground and hope to God that somehow if I trust myself, I can walk out of the ashes as a, mm-hmm. as a different person, as a better person, as more of my self. It is incredibly challenging, incredibly challenging to do. Has that been your experience as as you have gone through deconditioning? You know, especially now that you're so many years into human design, I'm sure you've had many journeys through deconditioning. (laughs) Like, oh, whoops, there's some more freaking conditioning hanging out in there. Let's go again. 
do you always see kind of a disruption to to relationships or structures that you have around you? Yeah, definitely. And also as a third line, I'm not exactly fucking doing that graceful all the time. <laughs> it's like, it's a messy process. <laughs> it's like I'm reading an article about how to do something. I read steps one, two, and three, and I'm like, I got it. Let's do it. And um, as it turns out, I did not have it. <laughs> um, yeah, I do notice that to be the case. I think like once I started to step into the truth, the desire was like, should I go back? Like you said, like that's there, but you almost can't, you can't do it once it's started, at least for me. And especially when the third line bonds made bonds broken starts to kick in. It's like this ball of light in my chest. That's like, we're moving, we're, we're done with this. Like whether you want to do it now or whether you want like your spirit to do it for you one way or another, this relationship is done, you know? And it's just, um, some are easier, some are really easy and some are hard. Some I don't notice I've stepped out of until months later and I look back and I'm like, oh, I used to hang out with that person all the time and now I don't, ah, yeah. there it is. But some people it's like really like erratic from start to finish of like this pulling apart. Like with my, my dad, for example, this was around trauma and I didn't tell anybody about my trauma except for my sister, my stepsister. Now she has been in and out of jail, has struggles with drugs, that kind of stuff. One day when she was in the height of an addiction, <laughs> she was like, yeah, well, I know something you don't know and told my whole fucking trauma story to the oh. other side of the family. And I was like, oh my God. Oh, okay. All right. That is one way to get it and, out. Um, it's, it's out. It's out now. I, I, about, I left my body and descended. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there. I'm not oh. here. Kat is no longer in the building. Kat has exited. <laughs> oh, truly. And so, and this is happening from a distance because I live in Minnesota and my family, that part of my family lives in Pennsylvania, right? And so for the following two years after that, it became a thing where my father wanted to try to force me to take my abuser to court to hold him accountable legally and no matter how many times I said this is not what I want this is actually making it worse me and that person have like had a healing happen between us and I forgive that person doesn't matter like he went as far as to try to reach out to my maternal grandmother to get to my mother so he could tell her like over my head and like when I wouldn't give in to his like the way he thought it should be then he's like hurling insults at me like oh well your partner doesn't love you and everybody else can see that so you're know, like shit like that that was so fucking brutal you know and we didn't talk for a long time. And then all of a sudden he sends me this video on Facebook. That's some gal singing a song called Fuck Your Feelings, right? Making a joke about millennials and how like we're really doing the feelings thing, right? And I just like, <laughs> I was like, wow. So this is what you choose to send your estranged daughter. Your daughter who is estranged because you're not respecting her feelings. This is a very interesting choice you're making, right? <laughs> I made it so clear. I was like, here's the thing. I would love to have a relationship with you. You're my dad, but I am a 30 year old grown ass fucking woman. And you need to be able 
to let me make my own choices. I understand that you having to know this information about my childhood is really hard for you to hold. And it really hurts you. You know, it makes you emotional. You wish you could have stopped it. I get all of that. I understand. But you couldn't. You didn't. And I, in my seat of power now, am telling you this is not helping me. So all I need is your word that you're just going to fucking stop. <laughs> like, get a therapist, whatever it is you need to do to, like, work that out for yourself. But you need to stop trying to force my hand. And he couldn't do it. He you know, reacted to that very angrily, you know, like retracted his Facebook friend request, hasn't spoken to me since. And, you know, sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it is that like explosive. Yeah. And that's, that's a familiar journey for manifestors. You know, let me caveat that. I think that that's a familiar journey for manifestors who are on the other side of the wound of people pleasing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Many of us have spent a very long time being very capable people pleasers, very, very capable of people pleasing, right? It takes a lot of effort to uphold that particular scaffolding in our lives, but many of us do it and we do it very effectively. And when we stop, right, which is deconditioning, right, when when we're going through that journey, we have to understand, A, become aware that we're even people pleasing um, and suppressing ourselves to keep other people happy. B, we've got to release that. We, we have to let that behavior go and that belief system go. C, then we've got to replace it with something. Like, well, what am I going to be now? Like, I'm, I can't keep being a people pleaser like I've always been. So, um, you know, now am I going to be empowered? Now am I going to be somebody who owns their feelings? Now am I going to be somebody who informs? Now am I going to be somebody who creates boundaries? Like, what what is this new pattern that I am replacing this with? And the most challenging part of that is then just accepting the whole damn thing because very few people around you will accept it. Very Mm -hmm. few people. I do believe that you move into then places in your life where you then energetically attract people who are accepting of it. And that helps you to continue to accept it. But for manifestors, it usually looks like kind of retrenching the whole social network that you've got and going again. From the beginning, um, as a four six, that pains me deeply, deeply pains me whenever mm-hmm. I have to lose a relationship. And so, you know, for me, kind of like these these shifting dynamics in in relationships, whenever I decondition something, is I take that very intensely. I take that very seriously because I I almost have this now like this resignation to the ultimate doom of the relationship. <laughs> like if I'm growing. Who's leaving? Who's leaving my life? And I'm going to have to grieve that. And I'm going to have to to let that go. And I I do think that that's going to be slightly different for every type of manifesto based on your authority, based on your profile, you know, based on, I guess, the specifics of your conditioning. But um, this interaction of when I let myself not be controlled anymore, it means that the people who were controlling me, which exist for every single manifesto on the planet, they're not going to want to be around anymore. And I think we need to be prepared for that as manifestors. This, mm-hmm. this just comes as part of the package for us. Yep. And to know that it could be anyone. It could really be anyone. Nobody's off limits for that. <laughs> and unfortunately, Everyone's got a free ticket to the show. Everyone. Yep. Yeah. And I noticed that the people in my life who I have kept, who are long-term people, like I got two friends, one's 24 years, one's 20. 
are on the same type of journey. Like they're both in trauma therapy. They're both, you know, in the boundary setting journey. You know, it's these people who are walking through the fire with me in a way that can stay around because they don't take it as a threat. It's not a threat for them. They're understanding what's happening, you know, but, and a lot of the times people that were or are controlling me aren't even aware that that's what they're doing, Hmm. you know, but they are, (laughs) they are. (laughs) Now, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Even my mother, like, well, especially my mother, not even my mother, but doing (laughs) me being an entrepreneur is very confusing for her. You know, when I'm in a season where money's really tight and I'm really going through it, she's like, well, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you just go, go get a job? And I'm like, (laughs) all right. So we can't talk about work. We can't talk about politics. There are some things in some relationships that become off limits. If you want to keep that relationship, (laughs) some things can't be talked about anymore. And yeah, it's just a really nuanced uh, fucking road to walk. (laughs) ultimately a very worthy one a very very worthy Mm -hmm. one but I you know I think that it's important that we we represent it authentically for what it is like yes it's it's bumpy and it's hard and it it can be chaotic and um it creates amazing things always but it's like you mentioned earlier there's this short-term experience and then there's the long-term experience and for anybody who's listening, who's going through this deconditioning process, whether it's around your your energy centers, whether it's just around you know your your beliefs and your behaviors of, of your manifest or energy, if you're still in the short term, just take a breather, <laughs> take a step back, right? Try to mm-hmm. try to get some perspective of of what that long term growth is, and understand that yes, this growth journey, this deconditioning journey, will always in some ways be hard, and always in some ways be disruptive, but it does get easier. I think because we we come to understand that it's always for our benefit. It always works out best mm-hmm. for everyone in the long run. You just you just got to hang in there till we get through it. Is there any particular advice before we wrap up? Is there any particular advice that you would give manifestors who are um, perhaps really struggling with conditioning or even really struggling with with trauma and how that's really playing into everything? I think the biggest thing I can stress is self-compassion because, you know, conditioning, it's like if you're in a little circle pool and you're walking in a circle and you're walking and walking, you're creating a whirlpool in that direction. If you turn around and start walking the other way, it doesn't just like switch and go the other direction because you've turned around. There is an effort. There is a time that has to happen for you to turn around the way you are and the way you function. You know, if you don't have it, didn't have any examples of a healthy relationship growing up, you're probably going to be acting out unhealthy relationships for a while and then learning how to be healthy. It is a process. So to have compassion for yourself in that is so, so important. And I think of too, you know, you talked in one of your Instagram posts about the motor centers and physical energy. And it was really important for me because I have a close manifesto friend who has every motor center is at the sacral. And I was watching her and I was like, Jesus Christ, like, how is she doing so much? How is she doing so much? And then she shared her chart with me. And I was like, Oh, that's how I only have a solar plexus. That's it. That's all I got. So to even like have that level of compassion too, if you are like 
digging into your chart and understanding that like you can't just look at another manifester and compare yourself to that person and expect to do what they're doing because there's so so much uniqueness in each of our charts so overall just self-compassion just be patient with yourself you'll get there Mm. So beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so true. I'm going to leave it on that note and leave us all feeling nourished and and full and engaged in self-compassion. Thank you so much for joining me. I've loved this conversation. It's just like blinked and I, it was over. And we've <laughs> shared so much. This has been really phenomenal. And I know that the entire community of manifestors is just going to gain so much so much growth and so much perspective and and just so much joy as well from listening to you. So thank you for being here and informing us and sharing your energy with us. I'm so appreciative. Um, If people are wanting to follow you, work with you, be in connection with you, whatever they would like, whereabouts can they find you? Yeah, I am most present on Instagram. You can find me at weird.wellness. I'm also on Twitter, Twitter at weirdwellness with no period. And then my website is weirdwellness.co. <laughs> In other words, search for weird wellness, people. <laughs> and you will find that. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Kat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hunting for Purpose podcast. I hope that my words, my sharing and the spiritual wisdom that came through today's episode have a magnificently transforming impact on your life. If you love this episode, I would be so humbly and truly grateful if you would share it on your social media. You can tag me on Instagram or Facebook at The Holly Marie. And also please consider taking a moment to leave a review right here on iTunes so that this information, this podcast and this spiritual transformation can be spread to even more people. Again, I cannot wait to see you for the next episode of Hunting for Purpose.